Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the awesome Andy Holmes. Andy, how are you? I'm absolutely fantastic, but I'm not sure about awesome, Tom, but but I'm pretty good. Well, you look pretty awesome on paper, Andy, I can tell you now. You've you've had actually a pretty stellar career. I've got to say, it's a career that I'd actually envy because you've done a hell of a lot in safety. What got you into safety to start with? Yeah, I've I've had a bit of a think about that, Tom, and, and I guess it goes back to before I was even thinking about safety in the, in the context of safety professional. I started life as a fitter and machinist, and uh, but when I finished my, my trade training, I wasn't really enthused about that as a career, and my wife and I headed off on a working trip around Australia. And that kind of led us into sort of working on, on rural uh, properties, station properties initially in pastoral New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And, and then we, the, the drought hit, this was uh, sort of early 80s. And we, we finished up actually after starting out sort of north of Broken Hill. And then we finished up because of the drought back in South Australia. Uh, working on a, a very well-established Merino start, not too far from where we live there in the Clear Valley. And, and whilst I was working there, it was the middle of harvest and the, the harvester suffered a flat tyre. I was tasked with the job to repair the flat tyre and there was a very uncooperative air compressor in the workshop on this property. And the, the, the end result was is that there was a, a pretty serious accident. I finished up with three fingers amputated. Oh, my uh, and, uh, and, 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 and look, I won't go into all of the details of that, but on reflection and quite some years after that incident, I mean, I was very fortunate. T- two of the three were... <laughs> were completely reattached and completely functional. So I, was, I got out of it sort of fairly well and uh, recovered fine and, and all that sort of stuff. 
But then, you know, I think later in life, it certainly made me realise that that despite training, despite good knowledge, despite, you know, all the right information, that people still make, you know, errors or mistakes that on reflection, you just think, how on earth did I do that? And and whilst there was lots of extenuating circumstances with that particular incident with my injury, there's no doubt about the fact that it, it was my error, you know, that, that I made. And, and you know, I, and, and, and I needed to own that. And, and it probably took me a few years to kind of come to that sort of realisation. But certainly that kind of ultimately later in life, certainly I think led me down the path of, of being interested in sacred work. Yeah, I, I, I must say, uh, being mature enough to actually own your errors is, is certainly something that came a bit later in life to me. I'll give you a classic example for myself. At a very young age, I was in a noisy factory and they gave me ear protection and I chose not to for 18 months wear that ear prote- hearing protection and consequently suffered 25% hearing loss. And, and people have said to me in the past, you know, why didn't you go back and sue them? And then to be honest, it's because I'm a grown adult and every day I made that choice not to wear the hearing protection. That's not one dumb decision. That's an awful lot of dumb decisions that I made. <laughs> and, and yeah, we should have had effective yeah. supervision. We should have had follow-up and all these things are wonderful in retrospect. But as an adult, you know, you get to make those decisions for yourself. Yes, yes, that's right. All right. You've worked in a, a wide range of heavy industries, soda, steel, infrastructure, power and gas. Is there any big projects that are on the wish list that you'd you'd like to do before you, you finish up? <laughs> Look, I, I, to, to be really honest with you, I think, my sort of current point in my career, I'm pretty happy in the role that I'm currently in. I was very fortunate to have a significant role with the with the project in Darwin for the construction of the onshore component of the of the LNG plant in Darwin. It was from 2012, and then I left the project after about five years in 2017. So, but that was definitely in terms of, you know, just the pure sort of career aspect was probably the pinnacle of my career. I wouldn't say it was the best job I ever had, but it was certainly the most challenging and interesting. And, you know, we, we had we had some fun along the way, but, you know, it, it was certainly, you know, at peak, I think we had 10,000 people on site. Uh, you know, I was responsible for, you know, the site aspects of, of construction, for, for health, safety, environment uh, and security. And, you know, we had, I think, uh, the HSC team at peak was about uh, 75 or 76 people. With, uh, I think I had eight direct reports. So, so yeah, it was that. And, and so that was a, a really, that was a sort of a, a sort of job that, at the end of the five years in Darwin, I kind of needed a little bit of a rent. But I was very fortunate to, from that role, some previous colleagues of who I worked with at BHP, they had taken up a role within the South Australian government. And in effectively what they were doing up, they were heading up a, a project team effectively within government that was going to be, uh, you know, what's called the 
the big battery or the first big battery in South Australia, or in Australia, obviously in South Australia. And so I got the role within that project team to kind of, from a government perspective, the, the risk that government was being exposed to through that project and a number of other renewable energy projects that were you know, being delivered at that same time where government uh, had a hand in those projects. So that was probably, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a renewable energy junkie and from a pure sort of, you know, safety and risk perspective and from an interest perspective, that was probably my most enjoyable job. Yeah. There was a lot of talk around when South Australia was getting the big battery a lot of talk on federal scenes that the South Australians had had gone bonkers. Let's be honest, and that the, <laughs> the world the world couldn't exist without a mainstream coal fired power stations. As someone who you said a renewable energy junkie, how, how, how did that sort of talk affect you? Well, when you say is the talk effective, do you mean is the you know is the, is the renewable energy Sort of, are we heading down the right path? Is that is that is that your question, Tom? Oh, more, just... more, more about the commentary at the time, which was we couldn't actually have reliable power in South Australia purely from battery storage. Mm, yeah, sure. Well, look, there's no question that, and you know, this isn't my area of technical technical expertise, but but certainly there's no question that battery storage on its own is not sufficient, that we need a streaming system in order to, you know, make sure that renewable energy is secure. And so, you know, over time, we will have to look to other, you know, mechanisms. I mean, certainly, if, if, if it's just going to be batteries, it's going to have to be a lot more bigger batteries yeah. to be able to, you know, make sure that when the wind isn't blowing or the sun's not shining, that, that we've got reliable energy, you know, for, for, for the country or the state. So, you know, it's we've still got a long road to go. There's no question of that. Yeah. But I, I guess I'd fairly say it was a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. You've done a fair bit of safety management. How important in management roles, whether they be safety or others, would you say a relationship building is? Absolutely. I think that if you don't have relationships, effective working relationships with people, you, you really aren't going to be effective. The ability to build you know, trust and rapport with your team is really makes you know, the difference between those who are you know, very successful and those who are really, you know, only just kind of marking time. Certainly, you know, I think if, if we hadn't have had, you know, a good working relationship with, with the Ictus project, for example, it was such a big team, it, it would have been an absolute nightmare. I mean, it was, it was challenging. We didn't need that, you know, that sort of relationship challenges on top of that as well. Yeah. All right. For someone who's new coming to a leadership position, what's your advice on actually building that trust and rapport? Yeah, look, I, I think it just comes down to those sort of basic humanistic things. You, you need to get to know your people. You need to understand, you know, what it is that, that interests them. You know, you've got to understand and, and get to know people on a pretty personal sort of a level. Well, I don't mean that, that you try to find in your private lives, but, but certainly you need to have built that rapport through that sort of, you know, you know good skills with listening, you know, good skills that, uh, you know, remembering what it is that, that, that people like to do, you know, remembering what, you know, uh, asking about people's families and, you know, what they did 
you know, and, and their time away from work and, and, and try to have you know, good recall with those sort of things because they're the sort of things that sort of humanistic side that, that people really, you know, click in with and, and, and gradually, you know, over time. And you always find somebody who's maybe a little bit more resistant for, for a whole variety of reasons because, you know, they, they have, you know, might, might have had, you know, poor experiences with, with, you know, people in the working environment in the past. So, you know, some, sometimes you've got to be a little bit patient with, with some individual. It's really yeah. about, you're not trying to be their friend, but you are certainly trying to have, have a, a good, solid relationship so that, you know, people understand what it is that, that they're required to deliver, you know, on, on a sort of a pretty personal level in a professional sense and, and have a good sense that, that when they, you know, stand up and, and, and are counted, that they're going to be, you know, uh, well thought of and, and also, you know, they're going to be, you know, just appreciated for, for their efforts. Yeah, you've been in safety for a, I won't say a long period of time because you're only a, you're only a young fella, no doubt. Andy, has has the profession has the safety profession changed in the period of time you've been involved? Yeah, it's, it's changed enormously, I think, Tom. I mean, when I was starting out, I mean, I started life in safety as a, as elected health and safety representative, and that was at a time when uh, the first, you know, I suppose Rogan's type model legislation was, was first introduced in South Australia and, and Australia more broadly. Um, so, you know, the first sort of what we would call modern health and safety legislation. And then since that time, you know, there's been obviously several iterations of, of, of legislation. And I think the other thing is too, is that, you know, society's expectations about you know, safety at work have, have, you know, understandably shifted considerably. And then the last thing that I really think is technology and the way that technology increasingly plays a role in, in safety in, in various different forms and guises, you know, whether that be, you know, things like, you know, mobile technology that we can use effectively in the field, whether it's, you know, the sort of the, uh, the, the analytical technology that we now have at our fingertips, you know. I mean, when I started out, you know, spreadsheets was really the only thing available. Mm. Now, you know, if, if, if you're still using spreadsheets, you're sort of part of, you know, some sort of antique society almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Yes, you spoke of help being a health and safety representative. One of my passions is the health and safety representative position. I've been teaching it for, I reckon, been teaching health and safety representatives for close to nine years. All right. My point of view is high, highly valued, highly underutilized, but everywhere I go, and I've taught in most states and territories, it seems it's a struggle to get people to nominate to become a health and safety rep. Do mm. you find that too? Yeah, look, I do. In fact, in in my current you know role and workplace, the the gentleman who's our elected health and safety representative was very reluctant, and and he was the only only sort of unwilling volunteer ultimately that that, that, that did stand up. But you know, I mean, that was one of the early things that I sort of 
sought to resolve when, when I first arrived because we had this crazy situation where we had the uh, two IC at the power station was actually the uh, the, uh, the nominated health and safety representative, which was just uh, and, and that was it wasn't because he sort of you know decided that that's what he had to do. He was the only guy who was willing to do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it took a, a fair bit of convincing on my part and, and working on, you know, people to sort of ultimately get, the, you know, somebody else to, you know, from from a, a worker to actually uh, put his, well, reluctantly somewhat, put his hand up. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, the, the, the role, it, it is a tough gig. Mm. And so I think that that's why people are, are reluctant. But it's a vital role. You know, you can be, and, you know, I've certainly witnessed people abuse the role. Mm-hmm. But but when it's, when it's done well, it it's, uh, can be very end. And certainly it's, it's a role that I think is absolutely vital to, to you know, that sort of, for that, for that conduit for uh, information to flow effectively from, from work teams to, to the management team yeah. uh, with, with health and safety issues. Absolutely, you, you, you've got it perfect there, Andy. I, I, my belief, anyhow. But the thing is, I don't know what we can do to make it more of an attractive position, so we don't have the situation which it's not a West Australian thing. This is all around Australia. Traditionally, half the people who turn up for my class have have not been nominated or not been elected. That they're the only person who's either put their hand up or they've mm. been told, by the way, you're it and make the most of it. And it kind of defeats the purpose if we don't have you know, elected health and safety reps. But this is something I said, it's not new. It's 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 been there for nine years that I've been delivering it. I just don't know mm. what to do to make it a more attractive position. I understand why it's a volunteer position and and at least 90% of all organisations is considered a volunteer position because we want people who are passionate about safety. But there has to be something. There has to be some sort of better system to get people willing to actually want to do the position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I I mean, in my particular case, it certainly was enabled me to kind of Join the dot as an elected health and safety representative. You know, more, more from my experience and my early working along, I had my uh, hand injury and, and and the legislation, and and it enabled me to sort of better understand that that I could, you know, actually, you know, have have an influence for the better. I mean, at that time when I was elected health and safety representative, I was working for a company that that. Had a fairly good safety culture for for the time in the late 1980s, but you know there was lots of things that we we did manage to improve. You know in the in the time that I was in that role, and certainly ultimately it it led me you know to a whole new career. Yeah, um, so certainly in my case, I, I was very happy. You know, and very pleased. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you think it held you in good stead for your later move into a safety role straight off? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, it was it was definitely the, the it enabled the, the door, you know, in, in, in a sense, it didn't open up any doors from a career perspective, but it certainly opened up the thought bubbling in my mind that, that, that maybe I 
to, to recruit. So I see it gave me a good solid grounding to sort of build upon. Yeah. All right. As I said, you've got a st- had a stellar career in safety. Sell me, tell me, sell me, not tell me, but you can tell me as well. Why should somebody go into safety? What's the <laughs> what's the, what's the positives? I think if you if you if you're interested in safety, you need to have an interest in in in, in people. Mm. Yeah, that that's kind of the starting point, and you have to have a genuine kind of sense of. Of, I suppose caring is probably the best word that I, I can think. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. For for your fellow, you know, workmates. And I think that that's kind of, that's kind of the, 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 the most important building. Why do you want to do it? Because I think, you know, I mean... I, it's rare for me to come home from work after, you know, you know, I don't know, 30 plus years in safety and not feel as though I haven't done something that's worthwhile and, 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 and good. You know, sure, I have frustrating days and frustrating moments, but on the whole, I feel as though I, I, I'm doing something that's, that is actually worthwhile and, and, and that we're sort of, you know, well, I've, I've never achieved it yet, but that you know, one day I might do myself out of a job. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's always the dream. It's always the dream. All right, I'm going to ask you a few little questions purely on safety. What's your opinion on incentivizing? Some people call it monetizing safety goals. Walk away now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> No, look, it, it's, I certainly believe in celebrating success, and and you know even that can be fraught with uh, with challenges. But but the idea of monetizing safety in some sense, you know, I, I suppose the most that I would kind of you know head towards is is you know a, a little reward for you know some sort of a an important you know milestone that's achieved in safety, and and that can be as simple as a you know as a as a as a you know a nice barbecue with your workmates, yep. you know preferably cooked by all of them. But but certainly you know I, I think once you start to tread the, the tightrope of monetizing you know incentives for safety, I think you're you're heading down a, a very sticky path that is will ultimately you know finish up in some sort of you know where, where somebody is, is going to be disadvantaged, and, and sometimes many people will be disadvantaged. Yeah, true. 
I always, I always think people who think incentivizing or monetizing safety, they have the best intentions. They actually, oh, you know, okay. they want, they want to reward people for safe behavior in that, but they don't see the outcome. And the true outcome is we're actually taking a system which encourages reporting mm-hmm. and we're flipping it and we're actually encouraging non-reporting, which is, I'm sure, I'm sure they don't, when they've designed the scheme, that's not what they have in mind. Yeah, yeah. All right. Safety slogans. There's a million and one out there. <laughs> Do workers believe in any of them? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm, again, I'm a bit of a, an anti-hero when it comes to slogans. I, I think the vast majority of people think that it's a, well, a bit of BS. Yep, yep. <laughs> I I think that to don't have a problem with a with an organisation having a bit of a catchy slogan, but, but one that I'm absolutely vehemently against with a passion is the zero harm slogan. So it you know, brings up a lot of a debate in even amongst safety professionals. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, I, I I think that they have their place so long as it's not kind of the 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 centre point. Of, of a safety program it can be just something that's nice something to put on people's shirts providing it's not zero harm <laughs> yeah I, I, I might agree with you 100 percent on that yeah the sad thing is that there are several very large organizations that still on everything that they do and say say zero hmm. harm is our mission is is it's and they come out with the the things that all accidents are preventable, and you know all that all that sort of wonderful stuff that is counterproductive. Yeah, yeah. and and I, I think that the that what it sort of ultimately leads to is is this kind of false belief that that you know of, of achieving you know the the holy grail of, of zero harm. And then ultimately, you know, frustration when when it's not achieved, mm. and uh, you know, and can ultimately lead to you know problems with you know blame culture and and, and exactly what we're trying to you know prevent. Yeah, true. All right, you've worked an awful lot of time in in South Australia, but also some other places around Australia. But working in Qatar on a safety project, same sort of principles, or a little different with the the influence of the local country. Yeah, certainly that was a somewhat of a culture shift. I mean, in terms of working in South Australia, for you know, for example, when I was working with the KBR, although I was based in Adelaide, I spent the vast majority of my time either in Perth or up in the Pilbara mm-hmm. or on the East Coast or in Singapore or Jakarta or PNG. So I was, you know, bouncing all around those kind of areas. And so as soon as you start going to places like Jakarta and Singapore and PNG, all of which I'd sort of, you know, had some working experience of before I went to the Middle East, you certainly, your safety focus tends to get recalibrated when you go to those, you know, other, you know, uh, another jurisdiction outside of Australia. So certainly I'd had some experience when I went to the Middle East of, of, that, of that sort of situation. And what I saw, you know, I, the, the, the safety expectations in the Middle East at that time, so that was 2010 in Qatar, were 
certainly on the face of it, very similar. Again, I was with KBR there in in Qatar. And so, you know, a, a, a big multinational company. And so, you know, the expectations in Qatar were effectively the same as in Australia, but but the legislative sort of, you know, jurisdictional requirements within Qatar were completely different mm. and at a much lower standard. But from an internal perspective, you know, from the perspective of our client in Qatar and also, you know, my own company's, you know, expectations, those standards were still expected at that same high level. Mm. But it was very challenging to, to you know, lift the local, well, not so much local because basically the whole workforce is expatriate in Qatar, but, but certainly the, the, the workforce who had been, you know, used to working in Qatar, lifting them up to those sort of levels was very challenging. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, I was I, I was expecting things to be challenging, but I was probably surprised at at you know how how poor things were, despite my sort of relatively low expectations. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm gathering because of the length of time you've been in the industry, you've done quite a few investigations into incidents, accidents, whatever you want to call them. Does that mm-hmm. be correct? Yeah. All right. You probably, because you've been a safety manager, you've also supervised some investigations or overseen other people doing the investigating. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What's the biggest trap investigators fall into when they're investigating an incident? Okay. I, I think it's the ability to to maintain that sense of objectivity or to sort of to 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 stay on the outside of of the and and not become invested personally certainly maintaining that that objectivity is, can be very challenging yeah. you know i've i've used a number of tools like those sorts of tools from from a course analysis perspective and, and I've also been involved with, you know, sort of, sort of follow-up compromise reviews of, of, you know, serious incident investigations. And what I find or have found in, in, you know, certainly a number of cases is that the investigators became sort of influenced by what they were told rather than what the objective facts were and and that therefore had an influence on the outcome of the investigation that was leading towards conclusions that were not really you know the root the ultimate root cause yeah it's i find it a bit of a catch-22 the more i think of it as safety professionals we're encouraged to and it's best practice to build relationships and rapport with the people that you're basically helping keep safe. Mm. But but when we do an investigation, we're supposed to suddenly put down this curtain of professionalism, forget everything we know about that person mm. or the people mm. involved and and suddenly become objective. And I can, I can see it being a challenge. Do you think perhaps getting an investigator in from another site who doesn't know mm. the people involved might be a good practice? 
Yeah, look, you, you've hit the nail on the head there, Tom, and, and certainly, you know, that that's, would be my experience, that, that having from outside of the, even if the person is from within the same organisation, but from outside of the team, you know, is a step in the right direction to, to help you to maintain that objectivity. It can be challenging because you're sort of seen as the the outsider mm. telling people, you know, ultimately with whether it be, you know, you know, you know, when 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 you make findings about things, you know, telling telling people about, you know, what it was that, you know, went wrong and, the, and therefore, you know, you're sort of seen as kind of, well, what would he know because he's not from here sort of thing. Yep. So, so th- that, that's probably the main challenge when, when you bring somebody in from outside of the team to investigate an incident. But uh, certainly, in my mind, any sort of a, a serious incident where there's, where there's either potential or actual serious injury, we should be doing our best to bring somebody external into the picture with the investigation. Yeah, I agree. But to me, that's, that's, that's best practice. Yeah, look, I... I, I... I think even if you're the most professional person, the most impartial person in the world, if you've know your people and you've you've you you know they've you've got to trust them and you you know their personalities, the easiest thing to do is once you have an incident and you find out who's involved, is to automatically, whether you mean to or not, is to jump to assumptions based on what you know about that person previously. Mm. Mm. Do you, if, if you were doing that, is the natural progression there for you to sort of in the evidence collection phase to basically form an opinion before you've collected the evidence of how the incident is likely to have happened and collect evidence which would support your point of view? Yeah, look, clearly that's that's the, that we've got to do our best to avoid. I, I think it's it's easier to avoid that trap if if the incident is less serious. Mm. But as that kind of you know risk profile you know ramps up, I think it it becomes that much more difficult for somebody with a, with a personal direct relationship with a team to maintain that objectivity and and uh, so yes it's uh, and, and and that's why you know that external person is so much more important but that's not to say that there isn't still an important for the safety person within that investigation to provide you know some level of guidance and advice to an investigator of course it's up to the investigator then to choose what information is is objective and what information isn't. <laughs> yeah, but that's true. That's true. All right. Biggest challenge in safety that you face so far? Yeah, I, I, I think as a safety manager, I think the biggest challenge I have faced is with those sort of day-to-day interpersonal relationship with, with, with team members. Mm-hmm. There's there's no doubt that if if you haven't got good strong relationships with with your team, is that those you know when when things get a little bit you know tough, you've got maybe a client that isn't seeing your point of view, or you know you're trying to make a, a case for a, for an investment for. You know, in in the safety space with your with your management team, and 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 they're not sort of 
seeing your perspective or your point of view, I think that the, it's it's the strength of those relationships in that sense, as you referred to earlier on, that can often you know make a difference between being able to effectively influence or or less effectively influence. Yeah. And sometimes too, it's it's about you know realizing that you're not going to win all of the battles. And sometimes it's better to sort of put something in your back pocket for a period of time and 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 mark time when for, for, for a time when it's you know you're more likely to be more effective due to you know other circumstances. And so sometimes it's about recognizing when uh, you, you're you're unlikely to win a particular battle and, and you're better off to kind of regroup and and, and rethink. Yeah. Yeah. But certainly without those those strong interpersonal relationships, whether it's, you know, with your own team or whether it's, you know, your, your management team or, or indeed, you know, the, the, uh, the, the workers on the shop floor, uh, all of those relationships are vital in, in, you know, to, to, the, to the modern day safety professional. Yep. Agree 100%. All right. One last question how do you measure success in safety yeah really good question i mean it's it's difficult to place a measure on it mm-hmm. uh, but it, but it's definitely a, about a happy cohesive and just trying to i'm struggling for the right words but certainly a, a happy cohesive team that that is likely to be much more likely to be a safe team. You know, it's a, a team that is well-trained, a team that understands what the goals are, and a team that feels as though they, their, their input is valued is, is likely to be a safe team. Yeah. How do you measure that? I, I, I'm not sure that I've got any sort of secret sort of, you know, silver, silver bullets to that one. But, but it's definitely be focused on your activities that, that you're performing that are designed to, to you, know, you know, assure that, you know, your, your safety management system is working effectively, that, 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 that people are, you know, understand what it is that they need to do to keep themselves safe. It's, it's those sort of, you know, leading activity that, we need to focus on measuring. And, and, you know, because I suppose there's a whole bunch of those sort of leading activities that, that we can measure. But but I think that it's that kind of esoteric kind of aspects that are difficult to measure, but you often kind of get that sixth sense almost that, that a team that you're working with is going to be safe because of just the way that they work with one another. That they, they, they work effectively as a team. But that's a, it's a sadly, it's not a very common thing for that sort of, for, 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 for that situation to occur in my experience. But, but it occurs in Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I've, I've got to ask you one more question on that because I agree with you 100%. And, and you're talking about qualitative me- methods, not quantitative. And I agree with that 100%. But how do you go about selling that to senior management <laughs> that it's not about numbers? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think you can sell the management by they, they can see the results. Mm. 
And so, you know, ultimately, yeah, you, you've got to use some sort of a, a lag measure mm -hmm. to be able to demonstrate that, that the path that you're on is effective. But it's certainly, it's rare for senior management to completely abandon lag, lag measures in my experience. Yeah. But but it's increasingly common for them to see that there is you know merit and and benefit from having a greater focus on on those leading indicators, irrespective of them being maybe somewhat a little bit fuzzy. Yep, yep, agree. Andy Holmes, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you tonight. Thank you so much for your time. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. But I do look forward to speaking to you again soon. It's been an absolute pleasure, Tom, and I look forward to catching up with you again at some point in the future. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.